now the fall of Jerusalem. This is God's word. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and seven men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. This is the number of the people who Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Judeans. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem, 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Judeans, 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. Read this far in God's word. Last week, we looked at the loss of gold, silver, and bronze. Today, we turn to the loss of the land and the loss of lives and even human suffering beginning the captivity that resulted from the fall of Jerusalem. Previously, we were told, there's just a scan through this chapter, if you remember in verses 4 and 5, Babylonians surrounded Jerusalem and starved them for a year and a half before they even broached the wall. We studied in verse 7 and verse 12 that the Babylonians breached the city wall then, entered Jerusalem in order to take over and destroy the city. Then we examine the report in verses 9 and 10 that the king had been captured and his sons slaughtered in front of him. Probably not slow, merciful deaths. Verses 17 to 23, we considered how the Babylonian commander organized a month of dismantling that glorious temple, carefully cataloging and looting the vessels, decorations, objects of gold, silver, and bronze to be carried back to Babylon. As we were told out of sequence back in verse 13, the next thing they did was to burn down the temple, the city, the king's palace, and the nobles' great houses all to the ground. Today we now move to verses 24 to 27, where we learn that Judah was taken out of its land. That's significant. And that the priests were put to death, which is also in itself significant. And then verses 28 to 30, we understand the report of the thousands who were taken as prisoners of war back to Babylon, three waves are described here out of the four waves that we know of happened historically. When we started reading Jeremiah, we were warned about all of this. We kept on referencing time and again through our study, chapter 1, verse 10, because that early was when the Lord God warned us. Jeremiah 1.10, See, I have set you this day, God says to Jeremiah, over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Chapter 1, verse 10. We were warned that God would break down. We were warned that God would destroy nations. What always seems to shock us, no matter how many times we hear it, is that God was willing to break down, destroy, and overthrow his own city, his own temple, and allow his own kings, priests, commanders, and warriors to be starved for months, to have their sons slaughtered before their eyes, to have their eyes put out, to be bound in chains, and for many of them to be struck down by an evil king in a military zone, and most of the remaining people to be taken out of the land that God had promised, the classic 
promised land. It shocks us every time that God would allow all of this devastation that's carefully described in chapter 52. It just plain shocks us. What are we supposed to learn about God here? The main point of this sermon's answer to that. Because God was faithful to cause uprooting and destruction, according to Jeremiah 1.10, then the exiles can trust God to be faithful to also rebuild and replant, per the same verse, Jeremiah 1, verse 10. That applies to us because we're exiles too, going through this world. We're called to have faith and irrefutable hope that God is consistent to do what God said he would do, first destroy, then build. He said he would allow his only begotten son to be destroyed and then be rebuilt, death and resurrection. Allow his son to be dismantled, like the temple was dismantled, taken outside of the city, crowned with thorns, pierced with nails, and a sword hoisted up for the death penalty of a pagan government on a Roman cross. When God said that Jesus would rise and he arose, it builds our faith and it builds our hope. And when we look ahead to God's promised future for us, that Jesus will break through the clouds and come again and take us home to be with him, this study builds our faith and hope from this Worldly exile to the safety of heaven, our hope is confirmed. So we'll look at this in three ways. The slaughter of the nation's leaders, verses 24 to 27a. A and B just means you split the verse. And then verse 27b is our second point, the uprooting of Judah from its homeland. That's very significant. Small couple of words, but it's significant. And then lastly, verses 28 to 30, the carrying away captive. That phrase keeps getting repeated. Carrying away captive, the surviving covenant people. So here in verses 24 to 27, we get a list of 74 individual persons specified to the commander to arrest, bring outside Jerusalem to the king of Babylon waiting there, staying in a military camp to strike them down and put them to death. It's not some messy slaughter that you might see in a movie, an ancient thing, a lot of bloodshed, who knows what all actually happened. These were not the sort of deaths that happened in the heat of battle. Look carefully at how the verses are presented to us. The captain of the Babylonian guard was intentional and selective in the people that he was rounding up for an execution. It reads like specific people. What modern day we might say the secretary of defense, the general of the army, and top officials from the Pentagon, plus there's religious people here, the clergymen of leading national denominations. Round it up. And in verse 24, get it like this. The chief priest and the second priest, three keepers of the threshold of the temple. Verse 25, an officer in the command of the men of war and seven men from the king's council and the secretary of the command of the army and 60 others who are along that list, along that order of leaders of religion and military and government. The people listed were official leaders being searched out by name, by position, and found, dragged out to the king of Babylon, The organized effort was being expended to account for the various branches of leadership, religious, military, and government. Each was executed as an intentional action by the invading force. It was a demonstration by Babylon that the Lord's chief priests and second priests were dead and buried, maybe not buried, and the religious leaders were gone, so the worship of God apparently must cease. The message from Babylon. This strategy was planned by evil Babylon, saying that all military and government leaders had been eradicated. There's an ominous finality to the verses 24 to 27. 
we are witnessing the death of a nation. That's what's being described, the death of the nation. Only some unimportant stragglers or youngsters were taken captive in order to be used for slave labor in faraway Babylon. It's almost dismissed as barely mentionable. And the Lord is telling us in his word that he allowed all of this to happen. It rattles your cage. How does this build up our faith as living hope and as exiles going through this world? Because all of this, the executing of 74 leaders, happened before all this happened. The death of a nation. Before this was demonstrated by this evil King Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord had issued a promise. The promise was that after 70 years of time had passed, God would take some different action. It would be Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom then that would be eradicated. And the kingdom of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar assumed that he had destroyed would rise, as it were, from the dead. It's not the death of a nation here. Because it's God's nation. And he had a promise attached to them. Our God is building up the living hope of the ancient exiles. He's building up the hope of modern exiles, reminding us how powerful he is. Under the very noses of these enemies, the true kingdom of the Lord God would survive for 70 years after the events we just read about. There's grace in the end. Let all exiles remember there's grace in the end. This truth is consistent with what God has said in his word on other occasions, and I would love to roll out one for you just as a quick side note. Remember Samson, the bumbling judge Samson? He was a judge, one of those strong warriors, especially equipped by God to rise up and save God's people from the military enemies. Strong in military might. Samson had the strength of a superhero. Just read the story. It's fun. It's amazing. It's true, historically. Spirit of God can do that for a human being. But Samson had a lot of failures. He had a lot of weaknesses. God taught us in that story in the book of Judges to look beyond the bumbling Samson the judge and to see God himself at work despite Samson. We get glimmers throughout the unfolding story of Samson, but it's really at the end of the story of Samson that we see the grace in the end theme. Samson was captured. He had released the, law, the, the, the secret that he should never have released to a woman. And they knew that his hair needed to be cut, so they cut his hair. He lost his strength. It represents disobedience and loss of power. His eyes had been put out, which is the tie-in to our passage. We're supposed to think this way. It showed Samson's defeated, but the question is, what's God doing? God's not defeated, and God's not done. Right under the noses of the Philistines, Samson survived. And the bumbling and blind Samson is now used as entertainment for the Philistines. Bring out Samson. Let's see the great judge warrior guy from the Israelites and let's make fun of him again and again. And then we're told in the book of Judges this little line, you almost miss it, it says, and his hair started to grow again. What does that mean? It means that God, right under the noses of the Philistines, was providing so that Samson in his death killed more Philistines than he had in his entire lifetime. What's the lesson of that? It's the same lesson of Jeremiah 52. God's weakest people, without priests, without military generals, without warriors, to have anyone organize a revolt against Babylon, without government leaders in any position, without temple, without city, 
were looking as helpless as could be. Their exiles being dragged away in a caravan to Babylon. But they have God's word. They have a promise from the living God. It's not over. God did not need priests or kings or generals or warriors or government negotiations to save his people. In fact, during the whole time, he's teaching his weakest exiles spiritual truths that are so important. He was sanctifying his people, all while he's preserving them under the noses of the enemy. God cared for his people in an enemy prison camp for 70 years. The movements of the commitment to the word of God that carried the church in later years started in the exiles in ancient Babylon, a commitment to God's word and to recording God's word from there. The exiles during those decades were sufficiently chastised by the Lord, brought to a point of repentance, purified in their walk with God, strengthened by him, made ready for new things so that when they arose, as it were, from the dead and were brought home, the exiles were made ready not just to come home, but to rebuild the temple and the worship of God. Secondly, Moving on in our message, we now see the second half of verse 27, the uprooting of Judah from its homeland. We need to remember the value of the homeland. The ultimate penalty for a covenant disloyalty to God was being removed from the promised land. The covenant Lord had promised this gifted land to them. You know the whole backstory. The land, the land, they had their own place. They had always assumed they would never lose the land, no matter how sinful they became. But they weren't listening carefully because God had said, you would lose the land. Verse 27, Judah went into exile. It actually happened. Why would Jeremiah mention and single out this one group Judah here in verse 27b? It's like asking, in Judges 16.22, Samson's hair is growing back again. Why would you mention that? Who cares how long his hair is? Because it's significant to the story. The question is, what's God doing? Because Samson was receiving grace in the end while in enemy's hands. And God is saying here, I uphold my promise to my people just like I upheld my promise to Samson even when Samson breaks his promise to me. Why would Jeremiah mention in verse 27 Judah was taken into exile? They were all taken into exile. Why make special mention of Judah? Let me give you a hint. Have you ever heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah? Revelation 5, 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who came from Judah. Judah is key to the future, key to God fulfilling his promise of the new covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ will come from the line of David the king. He'll come from the tribe of Judah, that God is capable of preserving his people right under the noses of the enemy. Samson, the line of kings, the tribe of Judah, Even the priest, as I'll show you now in a moment. And for that matter, God's always doing something with his people. Acts 4, 27, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Acts 4, 27, 28. The plan of God raised Jesus from the dead. God's plan was the death of Jesus, followed by the resurrection of Jesus. God's plan was exile, followed by restoration. We even see God's preserving work of the priests here in Jeremiah 52. Verse 24, the chief priest who was killed was named Sariah. He came from the line of a godly priest. 
He was the grandson of the good high priest Hilkiah who had rediscovered the neglected book of God's word during the reign of King Josiah. 2 Kings 22.8, Hilkiah the high priest said, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. 2 Kings 22.8, God can preserve his word. He can renew his servants to his word. The high priest Hilkiah's grandson is this Sariah, the Sariah who's killed in our story. Listed here in verse 24, and he was killed. Is that the end? Sariah's son lived on. Sariah's grandson became the high priest to the return from the exile. Let me read a couple verses if you pick this out. First Chronicles 6, 14, Sariah fathered Jehozadak. Jehozadak went into exile when the Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Somewhere in the groups was this probably a young man, Jehozadak. From him will be carried on the priestly line. Now Haggai 1.1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and listen, to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. One more. Ezra 5 verse 2, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Jehozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Ezra 5.2. If you missed all that, here's my simple point. They killed the chief priest, but somewhere hidden within the group of the deportations of exiles, God had preserved the son of the chief priest. That young man later had a grandson of of Sariah, who became chief priest during the people's return from exile. That's why Judah's mentioned. The future of God's fulfillment of the land lay with these exiles and from Judah, and God was closely overseeing every person, every tribe, every role, king, priest, prophet. God can build a future out of a handful of remaining people. God can restore us to the homeland after the homeland was lost. Hebrews 11.8, we read that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11.13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Verse 16 of Hebrews 11, They desired a heavenly country, a better one. Verse 17, God has prepared for them a city. We are the exiles awaiting our homeland, the new Jerusalem. This third point now, verses 28 to 30, the carrying away captive of surviving covenant people. This marks the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, 70 years of exile for God's people. How many would you expect had been taken into exile? If I had asked you a number, how many would you think? Verses 28 to 30 refer to the two main groups of Jews taken to Babylon, 597 B.C., The seventh year in verse 28, 3,023 exiles are taken. Second deportation to Jews to Babylon, 586, which corresponds to the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, listed in verse 29. 832 exiles were taken. A third smaller deportation mentioned in verse 30 that happened five years later, 745 exiles were taken. Are you a little surprised at the smallness of the numbers? Are you a little surprised? At the end of verse 30, the report shows the grand total, 4,600. Not a big number. Over a 15-year period of taking groups of people away from Jerusalem to ancient Babylon. Does it seem like, if you look at the numbers, if you're honest with yourself, that this whole exile 
has been given a significance that's all out of proportion to the numbers in the data. That many people? We lose more than that every month in our world. Really? Even if you take into account that if you look at the Second Kings um, listing, it's, this could be heads of household, and the number is actually more like 15,000 or 18,000. Even if you take 15,000 or 18,000, it still seems like a small number to you, doesn't it? And yet the whole structure of the book of Jeremiah, even the largest book of the Old Testament, is organized around this exile stuff. In fact, the structure of the whole Old Testament is organized around the significance of this exile stuff. It's right up there with the parting of the Red Sea and God taking his people out of slavery to Egypt. Those two events are the huge, major events in Old Testament redemptive history. Why is the exile such a big deal when there's only 4,600 people here? Because the Lord God has us focusing on it. It's the eternal word of God. He wants us to focus on this in order that we learn something about the Lord God, the creator of the heavens and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our precious Savior. There's some gold here for us to learn about God. And what it is, is God is keeping track of every single person. If you were carried away just yourself into captivity, carried away captive as this pounds home to us, verses 28 to 30, carried away captive and list your name. You were now overseen by evil. God will see to it that you're protected, convicted, forgiven, restored, sanctified, and safely brought home. That's the hope. That's the promise. That's the gold. The value of these verses the understanding of what seems like a small group of people who are exiles teaches us about God, your God, my God, our God, the God. will not lose one person. That's hope. We live in difficult times. We need that hope in that God. What hangs over chapter 52 is verse 3 where God says evil was done. Verse 4 where the decisive action was God's action. He will be angry about their sin, angry enough to cast them out of his presence. But God had a bigger purpose than Nebuchadnezzar had to destroy the place. God decided to restore the place and its people. This is why Jesus could pray to God the Father in the great high priestly prayer, the the true high priest who was killed and resurrected and lives forevermore. The high priest, Jesus prays in the great high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 12. I have guarded the disciples, he says to God the Father, and not one of them has been lost, except Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled in his case. The significance of this passage is that these exiles were God's covenant people. Stop all else. Nebuchadnezzar, Shmegabedevzer. God's covenant people. He says. He decides. He will care for. Right under Nebuchadnezzar's nose, he will care for. It's God's covenant people bound to God's covenant promise. The new covenant is activated in their case. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
We've seen our passage. What have we seen? The slaughter of the nation's leaders, the uprooting of Judah from its homeland, the carrying away captives, surviving covenant people, that God is faithful to destroy, he's faithful to rebuild. He's faithful to cause his son to die, he's faithful to cause his son to rise, giving us life and hope. So two application points. Number one, be built up in your faith and hope in the faithfulness of our Lord. Just like the Samson story, we're supposed to look past the circumstances of our lives. Look past what's happening and ask, what is God doing here? What is God doing in this? Jeremiah 52 is a review of the whole book. And based on our study of the whole book of Jeremiah, the hope now being offered here is certain, profound, and timeless. We're being asked to hope in the God of all of history. We're being asked to hope in the God over all nations. We're being asked to hope in the God who's over our nation. The God who's the head of the church, every church. We're being reminded that this Lord is so holy that he always brings sin under judgment. And that's the condition for us all. Ever since Adam sinned and was cast out of the garden, we all sinned and we all have been cast out of his presence. The Lord God is consistent in this. And yet that's not the end. We're also reminded about this God that he's consistent in the opposite side of that coin. Jeremiah 31 to 33 expounds God's salvation promises, restoration promises, and his new covenant. And 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul just summarizes with this golden nugget saying all the promises of God find their yes or their fulfillment in Christ. God fulfills his new covenant through the great high priest who was killed and rose again that his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, might live forever as our priest. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the point is to build up your faith and hope while you wait for him. And the second and last point is, because of your living hope in the Lord, eagerly repent of your own sins. Eagerly repent of your own sins. This priest, Sariah, that you feel for in verse 24, he was killed. But we remember the whole book of Jeremiah. It wasn't just the people. It was the kings. It was the prophets. It was the priests. This Sariah is part of the problem. He's a priest who failed. All the priests failed. All the kings failed. All the soldiers failed. Every person failed. And if we are going to lament the decline of our country, the decline of our fellow citizens, the decline of the churches in our country, in our day, we have to start by admitting that I am part of the problem. We have to start with personal repentance before the holy God. The country and the churches declined because I declined. We were content with the level of our knowledge. We were content with the level of our service. We were content with the level of our sacrifice we had achieved in our Christian lives. I'm good with this. Or I'm okay with sin in my own heart and life. We need God's grace as much today as when we were born. We need God's grace as much today as when we were baptized, when we first believed, when we were converted, when we made public profession at the lowest point of our spiritual life, at the highest point of our spiritual life, when you were on that missionary journey. We need grace today as much as then. The fall of Jerusalem and the loss of the homeland is the occasion that pleads with us to throw ourselves again at the mercy of Christ our Savior, Because we serve a God who's so holy, he will destroy the place 
in order to preserve his holiness. And he will send his son to die in order to preserve his holiness. And he calls us to himself by grace and then insists on that holiness. The fall of Jerusalem and the loss of the homeland is a call to us to eagerly repent of our sins, to confidently trust in his rescue to bring us home again, and his daily grace to us to enable us to remain faithful to him alone. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. With this God of mercy, be eager to repent. Let's pray. Father, grant us that gift of repentance.